Okay, well, if you've got your um, Bibles with you or your laptops or whatever else, iPads, iPods, if you could open them up to John 9, uh, we're going we're gonna to have a look at a passage from John 9. It will come up behind me, I think, on the screen. John 9, we're going to have a look at verses 1 to 12. Great, okay, let me read this out to you. John 9, verse 1 to 12. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit. I still think it should say he spat, but there you go. He, oh, in my one it says spit. I don't understand. I don't argue with spell checker. But anyway, he did on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. And how then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed. Then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. Lord Jesus, we pray and ask that you would open up our hearts, open up our ears, that we might hear what it is that you want to say to each one of us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this incident in Jesus' life. It always makes me smile. He meets this blind guy, and the disciples say, Okay, uh, Lord, uh, who, who caused this person to be blind? Was it him? Did he do something wrong? Did his parents do something wrong? And Jesus says emphatically, Neither, neither did anything wrong. And then he puts some mud on the man's eyes, gets him to go and wash it off, and the man basically gets healed. And if you read on the story, which I would encourage you to do another time, uh, you find that this miracle doesn't produce rejoicing in every section of the community because the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they hate Jesus and they basically start an investigation. They don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. They don't want people to believe this either. They declare Jesus is false. He's charlatan. He's a liar. And therefore, this miracle can't be true. This miracle can't be real, because otherwise people might start to think that Jesus is really who he said he was. And so we read that they drag this man into court and they question him and they drag his parents into court and they start questioning them and they try and trip them up and they try and get them to denounce Jesus and this miracle even happened. Just read the rest of the chapter at some stage. It's a comical farce of an investigation. And the kind of investigation ends when the blind man says this great line under questioning because they're trying to get him to say that Jesus is a sinner and he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And the kind of the investigation ends and the Pharisees, oh, you're steeped in sin at birth. Who dare you to let you? And off it all goes. Just a, just a comical kind of moment. But when you read this incident, I think it's very easy to focus on this 
original question that the disciples asked about who sinned, this man or his parents. I think that's what goes on in most people's heads. When I read it, that's what kind of comes to the fore. I just want to talk about that for a moment. So you've got to understand that most Jews at the time believed that sin and suffering, and in this instance, suffering manifesting itself in sickness, in this person's case, physical blindness, they believed that they were directly connected. Sin and suffering, sickness were corrected. That basically, someone must have done something wrong to offend God that then caused God to, uh, to basically allow or directly cause this sickness. And so they reason it must have either been this man himself or it must have been his parents. Now we know the Bible does say that someone's sin can cause personal suffering and sickness, but nowhere does it say in the Bible that all or every or the majority of suffering is caused by someone's sin. Of course, Jesus, God's Son, God the Son was there when God made everything perfect in Adam and Eve. He was there when God made it all perfect. Perfect bodies, perfect creation, no sin, no suffering, no sickness. God the Son was there. He witnessed, he took part in it. He was also there when there was the fall. He also was there when mankind rebelled against God. And so he was there and watched the moment that sickness and suffering And the devil was given authority on earth to come and mess about with people's bodies and people's minds and the physical earth. This good creation that God had made. God the Son, Jesus was watching on. He he, he saw it. He understood it. He knows it. And so he, he knows that, no, no, it wasn't this man or his parents that caused this blindness. This blindness is just a manifestation. It's just a display. It's a demonstration that God's perfect creation has been messed up by mankind's rebellion. And then the devil, if you like, being given authority, let loose, unleashed to do his worst on the earth. And that now future generations, including us, live with the consequence of that rebellion. And that means that there is suffering and there is sickness and there is death. If you like, Jesus knew, no, this is not about this man or his parents. This is a demonstration of what happened. You're going to blame anyone. Go back to Adam and Eve. That's when mankind rebelled against God. You're going to go anywhere. Go there or go to the devil. He's the one who sows sickness and decay. Jesus understands this. And so the question Jesus quite rightly understands, it's not this man, neither is it his parents. And so when Jesus says this happens so that, he doesn't, he doesn't mean that you know, God blinded this man so that Jesus could heal him. God's not playing good cop, bad cop. By this he means this meeting, this moment in time, this incident when Jesus, the Son of God, meets this man. And if you like, what is happening is that the kingdom of darkness and the manifestation of evil... And the consequence of the fall now has come face to face with God the Son, with goodness. Are you with me? That that is what this refers to in this moment. The kingdom of darkness has just come face to face with the kingdom of light. Are you with me? Good has just come face to face with evil. That is what this refers to. And something is going to happen. One of them is going to win. Something is going to be displayed And what gets displayed is that, namely, King Jesus brings a victory over over 
over evil for good. He brings a victory for the kingdom of light over the kingdom of darkness. For God over Satan as he reverses the blindness and gives this man his sight back. Do you understand that? So important that we understand that. So I love this incident because it's about God through Jesus reversing the suffering that man's initial rebellion and then Satan's worst, if you like, have caused in people's lives. And as you read miracle after miracle, you've got to understand that is what Jesus is doing. It's not like, you know, Britain's got talent and here's Jesus. Really, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll feed the 5,000. I'll put this man who's out of their mind back in their right mind. I'll let this lame man walk in. He's not playing to the crowd. He's the son of man who's walking around and seeing the effects of evil and sin and the consequences in people's lives. And he's saying, no, no, I'm going to reverse that because that's not how God made it. It's not how God made it in Adam and Eve and it's not going to be in heaven one day when everyone gets there. And in this now period, I'm going to display the kingdom of God. And that's what God is doing. That's why Jesus did these miracle after miracle. But having said all that, blah, 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 I don't want to focus on it today. When I read this passage, when I read this passage, it was not what struck me from it. But I thought if I don't explain it, you might be sitting there scratching your head about it. The verse I want to focus on today It's not the healing, it's not the investigation by the Pharisees, though funny and farcical it is. But it's this line in verse 4, which I think can easily be missed. Right in the middle of this amazing incident, this power encounter, this miracle, Jesus says this line, which I think opens up to us, really, so much of Jesus' thinking. It's easy to miss, it's easy to miss it, but I think this is how Jesus thought, I think it's how we should thought. It's verse 4, Jesus said this, As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. And God kept bringing this word back to me and back to me. I kept trying to read on through John. God kept bringing me back to this one single verse. I just want to spend the next few minutes just explaining what I felt God shared with me through it. Under three simple headings, three key words in there, night, day, and works. Night, day, and works. So the verse says, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. At the moment, the most popular TV series is, anybody know? Love Island, maybe, but in terms of viewing figures, I was going to go for a different one. Uh, I won't ask that again. Uh, uh, My fault, not yours. One of the most popular TV series at the moment over the last few years is Game of Thrones. Now, basically, right, basically, if you take all the sex out, which, to be honest, current program makers feel they need to add into it, but it doesn't actually add very little. It adds very little to the story, but they kind of feel like if they're going to make a drama, they've got to have a bit of sex. Is that not right? Do you know, if they made Sherlock Holmes these days, it'd be Sherlock Holmes and a bit of sex, you know, because we've got to sell it. That seems to be the way of these things. But actually, if you take the sex out of Game of Thrones, what you've basically got is a classic kind of goody versus baddie, power struggle, kingdom against kingdom, goodies being good and then sometimes bad, and baddies being bad but then being sometimes good. Do you know what I mean? The classic kinds, even if you've not seen it, don't worry, it's that classic. Lord of the Rings is the same. Most of those kind of stories are are pretty much the same at their heart. 
classic good v evil drama. But what's interesting is that in this show, the whole thing is played out with a backdrop of this, of this fact that winter is coming. Right? right at the start, they say winter is coming. And what they mean by winter in Game of Thrones is this, that there's going to be a day when actually it won't go kind of day-night, day-night, decent weather. It will just be dark, cold, frozen, arctic. Crops will fail. People will starve. And this winter might last for one year. It might last for 200 years. And so it's so severe. No one knows when it's going to happen, but it's happened in the past. It's going to happen again. They know it's coming. And so the whole thing is played out with this backdrop that winter is coming. And basically all the nice people have built a wall kind of up the, halfway up the you know, land mass and, and there's a whole load of people up there that they don't like and those people know winter's coming so they're trying to get over the wall and come down because they think they've got a better chance to survive down south and there's a whole lot of woo, white walkers and they're, gonna, they're, they're chasing these people up north and so they're attacking the wall and these people and, and that's the way that basically the story is played out. But what it means is the whole drama, the day-to-day lives of the people involved some of them rich and living for pleasure. Some of them actually dirt poor, doing anything to survive. But they're all, live, they're all living with this sense that they know that winter could come any minute and everything could change. And some are very aware of that. They're fighting for their lives. Some are in a kind of sense of denial. They're kind of eat, drink, merry, uh, it, just living in denial. Now, look, I'm not promoting the program, Right? There may be too much sex for many Christians to watch comfortably. I'm not, I'm not, talking, I'm not promoting it. I'm just saying that what, it's interesting for me that one of the most popular dramas on TV has this sense, not only of good versus evil, but also this sense that things don't stay the same. Things don't last forever. Winter is coming. There is a limited period, and it's what kind of brings the tension and I think that that TV drama, like most dramas, they're just picking up actually on this real truth that Jesus highlights here, that actually our lives, real lives, are lived against the backdrop, if you like, that night is coming. There is a time coming for each of us when none of us are, in a sense, going to be able to work. Are you with me? There is going to be, we, we live our lives with that similar kind of backdrop. Because Jesus, I think, here isn't really talking about consecutive 24-hour periods. When he says day-night, he's not talking really, you know, 12 hours of daylight, 12 hours of nighttime. What he's really talking about is day. He's talking about the time that we're alive, the time that he's alive. The amount of time, days, years that he has been allocated, that we have been allocated to live on this earth and therefore have the opportunity to do things and really night as being the time when that's over. The ability to do whatever we think we should be doing has gone. That's certainly what God spoke to me about as I was reading this passage. And so in thinking about night as I think Jesus really means it here, personally we have to understand that for him, if you like, night is about to come. See, it's not going to be long before Jesus goes and does the final and greatest work that the Father gave the Son to do, which was to suffer and die on the cross for the sins of anyone who would put their faith in him. As we sang about this morning during worship, the very darkest moment of Jesus' life. And though it's the greatest work that Jesus is going to do, it in one sense is the last work that he's physically going to do. In one sense, that is when, if you like, his day is finished. 
We know that, praise God, he was raised to life. He was glorified, taken to heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God right now. He's watching over us this morning. He's here by his Holy Spirit. But now he works through his people the deeds that he wants done because his time of physically walking on this earth and laying his own hands on people and doing the things that God wanted him to do has in that sense passed from day to night. Do you understand that? In my quiet times this week I was reading further, I managed to get further on in John eventually and the, the, last, uh, the time at the Last Supper when Jesus it seems it gives Judas one more opportunity to repent for the betrayal that he's about to do. As he says, I'm going to dip this bread in and the one that I give it to is the one who's going to betray me. Here, Judas, have some bread. That's what Jesus does. Looks him in the eye. Here, he's facing, he's facing Judas up. But it says Judas does not repent. And Judas takes the bread and he, he decides, it seems in that moment, that his plan to betray Jesus for money is decided upon and it says in the bible that at that moment satan entered him not before before it was greed and judas's own ambition but at that moment it's like okay the deal is done but you know you read on in verse 30 and it says as soon as judas had taken the bread he went out and it was night and it was night it's like it's like okay the beginning of 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 jesus on the cross the beginning of jesus's night is coming the deal is it's done really he has been betrayed. Another jigsaw in the piece has been completed. I think Jesus understood that he had this limited, preordained amount of time that the Father had given him and that it would come to an end. It was about to come to an end night. And many religions, they claim that we have many lives, that we have multiple opportunities to please God, to get to know God. If we're not too good in the first life, it doesn't matter, we'll come back to something else and we can be a bit better then. Got this kind of idea behind it, but the Bible says that's rubbish. The Bible says we have one life, one day, in that sense. One day, no further lives. And I think like some of the characters in Game of Thrones, many people, many Christians, especially in the West, live as though, you know, we're never going to die. As a nation, we have an aversion to death. I know I was a policeman. We, we, we don't want to see dead bodies. We don't want them in a house. Take them away. Get someone to take them, cover them up, put them away, get them out of the way. We kind of keep death at arm's length. It's, uh, when you go to another nation, you realize that's not how they do it. They bring the body in. They stand there and cry over it. But they, they're much more in touch with death. I think we just try and keep it out there. We don't want to know because we don't really, I think, want to admit that it's happening, that it's going to happen. We know night is a reality, but we kind of want to ignore it, I would say, generally. But then I think if I wasn't a Christian, the idea of night would scare me. The idea of dying, the end of my days, coming to an end, would scare me. It's that step into the unknown. And if you're not a Christian here, then I want to say to you, if you've ever been scared by what happens next, I want to say to you, look for Jesus. He has the answers. He loves you now, but he's got an answer for that as well. If you're scared, you should be scared. I would be scared. I want to say, if you're a Christian, though, if you're a Christian, when our day ends and we step into night, you know, it's a certain step. It's a step into the future with Jesus. Our time on earth coming to the end should not fill us with dread because actually we get to go and be with the one who loves us more now than we'll, we'll ever know. But I think what it should do, it shouldn't fill us with dread 
but it should focus us on what we do in the here and now. If our time is limited, if there will be a time when our day is finished and our night starts and we can't do anything in that day, it should focus us, as I believe it focused Jesus, on the here and now. Which kind of takes me to the second point, day. The second point, day. Because Jesus says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent us. Night is coming when no one can work. See, because of the certainty and the implications of night, Jesus' focus is on day. As long as, it's on, as long as it's day, while I have this precious opportunity that is called day, I'm going to focus on that. Jesus, the light of the world, which is what he calls himself in the next verse, the one who's bringing God's light and transforming power into this dark world caused by sin and Satan. He's going to focus on bringing that light while he is here. And the opportunity for that exists only in this period called day, this time that we have. And day, of course, is made up of just a series of todays. Our days... Our lives are made up of a series of todays. For some people, I don't know, it might be a few hundred. For some, it might be 10,000. But our day, our day is made up of a series of todays. And therefore, each today is precious. It's why our day and every day is precious. Because it's the time, it's the only time that we have to do the things that God wants. The past is history. It's good to understand the past so that we can think right about it, but we can't change it. It's happened. We've either done it or we haven't done it, but it is done. In a sense, the, 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 the future, we don't know what's going to happen with some things in the future. It's, there's a mystery to it, not in the sense that we don't know anything, but even things that we plan to do, we don't know whether we'll get the opportunity. We may not be able to. Things may have changed. We may plan to do something in a year, but you know what? We haven't quite got a year. That's the truth. We don't know about the future. The best we can have is good intentions and plans. Nothing wrong with good intentions and plans. But you know what? They are nothing better. They're not more than good intentions and plans. Therefore, it's only in our todays that we can actually do things or not. We may plan to pray tomorrow, but the best that we can actually do is plan for it. We can only actually pray today. We might plan to encourage someone tomorrow, but you know what? We can only really encourage people today, while it is today. We may plan to give and to witness and to be obedient, to show love and care tomorrow, and, and, and we should. We should have that intention of doing those things tomorrow. But actually, the only time that we can actually do them is today. Do you understand? Is in our todays. I picked up my youngest daughter, Jordan, who's 18, uh, she's not here today, so I won't embarrass her like um, Jenny did with Johnny. But that's a whole nother family matter. I'm not going to get involved in that one. Uh, no, I picked up Jordan. Uh, I picked up Jordan the other day from her uh, sixth form prom. And like other parents, I waited there at half past 11 at night uh, in Westerham Golf Club, uh, waiting by our cars, looking at our phones, waiting for our teenagers to come out in various stages of dress and soberness. And uh, it hit me, quite a moment actually in the car park, it hit me that the day, if you like, or the number, that chunk of my and Jane's life as being parents with children at school and all the challenges and opportunities that come with that, whether we'd done well or not done well, didn't matter, that particular period of our day was over. 
It was done. And actually, I wasn't sad because my children were no longer at school and that means I'm getting older because I look in the mirror and realize I'm getting older. I don't need a moment like that to realize that. But it did sober me up because I was thinking about this and I realized it represented that 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 day or that part of my day, that series of todays is gone. It's gone. It's finished. It's happened. And it, it did sober me. See, I'm very grateful to God for saving me. I, I, know, I know that I wasn't looking for him. I know that, uh, that he came and saved me. I, I know enough about myself, and so do you, to know that there's nothing worth in me that is worth God sacrificing his son for. It's true, isn't it? Hard to argue against, and I'm arguing for myself. You know, there's nothing in me that is worth enough that says, yeah, that's a fair exchange. God, you give your perfect son who's done nothing wrong for me. No, it doesn't add up. So I know he came and found me because I wasn't looking for him. And I know that I wasn't worth saving. I know I wasn't worth the price that he paid. Therefore, my only conclusion is that he must love me. If you can work out another conclusion, you crack on. I can't think of another conclusion to those two things. And I'm very thankful for that. And I'm thankful that God, by his grace, has given me a kind of even Christian temperament, and I've got a good awareness of who I am in Christ. I stand on that, uh, stand for who I am. But, you know, one thing I know that I'm deficient in, one thing that I really want God to try and help me with and teach me with is to help me, and I believe he will. I believe actually over my sabbatical next term when I'm not going to be here, which is going to be funny all in itself, but I do believe that period of next term when I'm not going to be around here doing the normal things, one of the key things I think God really wants to hone into me and speak into me is this whole thing that life happens day by day. Life happens in the today. That I must become much more aware that opportunities to do things for God happen in the, in the day, in the, in, the, in the ordinary every today. Because I can be somebody who's focused on getting things right for the future. I can be someone, even if they're good things for the future, you may be like that. You, I know some people who are kind of stuck in the past. They're stuck in history. They're stuck in things. They can't move on from there. But they're there. Actually, I'm over here. I'm in the future. I'm thinking about this and that and what's going to happen there. But, you know, both those extremes, if you like, I think rob me and you, if you're like that, of joy in the moment, of opportunities in the moment, of, of the things that God wants to open up, which I think he will only open up for me and you in our todays. So this may just be a question that I'm asking, but it is, how do I make the most of my day? The time that I have on earth. I, I know I want to serve God. I know many of you want to serve God in your day. In that, in your, in your combined series of todays. So what do we focus on? What do I focus on in my todays? Which means I will use my day, my life, as God wants me to. And again, I think Jesus has the answer here in this third point. Because Jesus says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. I don't know about you, but one day Jesus seems to be teaching, healing, feeding thousands of people, massive crowds there. The next day he seems to be walking and maybe just talking with his disciples. The next he seems to heal one person, right? One, one person and tells them, 
don't tell anyone. It's not a brilliant evangelistic strategy. Right? Heals one person, tells them, don't tell anyone. The next, he seems to be praying by himself. He's away all day. He's not interacting with any person at all. The next, he seems to be traveling with his disciples and sitting down and eating with them. Each day, he seems to be doing something different, different people, different levels of exposure. Sometimes there are thousands in public. Sometimes there's just one at a well. And yet you never read or get the sense that Jesus was ever in the wrong place. Never get the sense that he was rushing. He was completely in the moment. Even whatever was coming next, he was co- the only time you see really Jesus in the moment be affected in a sense by the future is in Gethsemane when he's praying about the cross. That's the only time. Every other time, it doesn't matter what's going on around him, who's died, what pressures are under, he's completely living in the moment of today. That's what I pick up. I don't know about you, but if I'd fed and taught thousands, healed and delivered people one day, and then the next day, kind of all I was doing was healing my mate's mum and then she was cooking us dinner, I'd be a bit restless. Do you know what I mean? I'd be a little bit restless with all the sick and the suffering around him. No, no NHS no NHS, you know, people around him, lame, blind, I mean, beggars on the street, you know, in his face with all that need around him and God doing these mighty miracles through him. God doing these mighty miracles through him. How did Jesus leave those places and go somewhere else? How did he withdraw into the quiet place? I mean, how is the question I think we have to ask. And the answer, of course, is that Jesus says that while it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. He didn't say, while I'm here, I must do everything that I can think good to do. He didn't say, while I'm on earth, I must do nothing. He said, while it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. In other words, for Jesus, the number of miracles, the crowds who gathered, the fame, the accolade he was drawing, none of those things were the issue. None of those things were what he focused on. He was focused on what God wanted him to do. Not just a general good things to do, but what was it, what the, the, the work that the Father had uniquely given him to do. For Jesus, better to do one thing that God wanted him to do than even a million seemingly good things. So even for Jesus, in his day, and therefore his todays, they weren't simply about doing as many good things as he could. Even though he was the greatest teacher, he was the greatest healer, he was the greatest deliverer, the greatest comforter that ever walked the earth, good for him was doing the things that God wanted him to do. Jesus knew there were things God wanted him to do, had sent him to do. He wasn't supposed to try and do other things. He was supposed to do what God had planned for him. Jesus was focusing his todays on simply doing those things that God had called him to do. I think you and I, certainly I, would have reasoned that with only three years to spread the gospel, Jesus better get out there and travel to as many nations as he could. Better get out there, travel as far and wide as you can. Right, the Roman roads, come on, get out there, Jesus. Go talk to as big a crowds as possible. Go to as many nations as possible. And yet God's plan was that Jesus would stay in a relatively small geographic area and pour the majority of his time and effort into 12 disciples. The way that Jesus lived, if you like, his lack of running around, trying to do everything, even every good thing possible, was actually a massive step of faith 
because he was trusting that his father God had an overall plan and that what his father was calling him to do was focus each day on what God wanted him to do in that day. No more, no less, no other. Right? No more, no less, no other. And that's what I desperately want to grow in. I desperately want to grow in these days how to live each day doing what God has called me to do, right? Not being stupid. I understand that there are some things you could, but what God, what do you want me to do today? No more, no less, no other. See, I think sometimes for myself, I'm prone, I can run around trying to do everything. Trying to do all the things, and they're good things. And they, they're probably not getting done because God told someone to do it, and someone didn't do it, so guess what? I better do it. I can do that. I'm sure you can't. You know what I mean? Even in my life, I better run around, I better do this at work, at home. It's not really my responsibility, but they're not doing it, so I'm going to do it. Really, sometimes, sometimes there are things to be done, but there are other times it's just a lack of faith on my part. Are you with me? If I don't do it, I don't think God's going to do it, and therefore no one's going to do it, therefore I'm going to do it. I'm also just talking to myself, that's all right. The other way around, of course, is that I'm going to do less than God because I get comfortable. I get comfortable. Jesus, suffering servant, dying on the cross. I want to follow you. Well, you want me to get up early? Well, you want me to do that? I don't want to do that. That's not, that's not very comfortable. I don't want to do that. I want to eat ice cream, sit down. It's nice. <laughs> I don't like that person very much. I haven't been very nice. I don't want to do that. It's not very comfortable. It's not going to benefit my future. It's not going to make me more comfortable now, more wealthy now, more satisfied now. I don't want to do it now. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Just part of me, if I'm being honest with you, I just want to do less than what God would have for me. But if I'm honest, it's just my own laziness, my own desire for comfort, trying to find comfort, pleasure in things other than God. It's all in the Bible. <laughs> it's all the same. No, never been any different, never will be any different. No other. Sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes I think I know better than God. I, know, I think I know better than God. Right? I think I've got a better plan, God. You know, it's like, oh, come on. There's surely two and two makes four, God. But God knows better, right? God knows better. If ever, if ever there was an example, it's got to be Jesus. got to be Jesus. Crazy. Didn't travel far. Didn't, didn't go after the massive crowds. But he just trusted in God's plan. No more, no less, no other. Which means, I think, for me, I have to make sure that I'm not focusing on measuring the wrong things. When it comes to how do I get at the end of my todays, and when I get to the end of my day, my life, when I look back, I've got to make sure I've measured the right things. Because if I've measured the wrong things, if I've said actually success is, for example, is about well, I'm, getting, I'm getting happier, uh, I'm getting wealthier, uh, I'm getting more fame, uh, I'm getting cleverer, maybe as a church leader, we get more numbers, we got more build. If I, I don't know what your, what your thing would be to measure, but everyone will have different things to measure. But you know what? They may not be suitable measuring sticks. You can measure some things by them, but they may not be. I think, did I do what God wanted me to do in my todays is a much better measuring stick. I think that's how Jesus slept. Easy. I think that's how Jesus kept in stay, but I don't think it was difficult. The need was massive. I don't think Jesus was unaware of the need, but he just, I think, this little verse gives it to us. Today, I want to do what God wants me to do. God, what do you want me to do today? It sounds so simple, but I believe it's absolutely the key. But I do think it will take faith 
Because I think it means we have to trust God that he will do the things that either I think he's not doing or we'll have to trust God when he seems to take us on a route that we don't think is the best route to get there. So there is faith involved. I think it will also take time because I think that if we're going to do what God wants us to do each and every day, we're going to have to listen to him. We're going to have to hear at the start of the day, God, what do you want me to do? Because otherwise, when something that comes up that seems good, our default mode will be to do it. And then we'll, or similarly, our default mode, when something comes up that makes us more comfortable or wealthy or successful comes up, we'll probably go for it. Are you with me? I'm not trying to be horrible to you. I'm exactly the same. Unless I'm conscious that I'm here to serve God and not those things, either will trap me. Either can be a snare around my feet. I think it's also going to take focus because it's going to require me not to live in the past or to live too much in the future, but to deliberately be spiritually awake today. Today and every day. Because that's where the opportunities to serve God are. That's where I can actually do things that God wants me to do. We can all have a great intention of praying tomorrow for the kids that go to crisscross or New Day, but actually it's only in today that we can pray for them. And I think when we expound that across our lives, it's only in our todays that we get the chance to bless, to encourage, to take the opportunities that God gives to us. And just notice, I'll just end with this. Notice in that verse, it says, Jesus says, as long as it is day, we, we must do the works of him. We must do the works. Jesus wasn't just talking about himself. He's talking about we, his disciples, those there, us who come later. He says we, he's including us in this call. So I think the challenge to us, the encouragement to us, is will we do the works of our Father God whilst it is our day? Will we as a church, I'm so thrilled with how we have, have raised, if you like, uh, to the challenge of these Super 6 initiatives. Not to make ourselves busier, but I think they're God-ordained things. 20 helpers. At one stage, I think about a week ago, we had more helpers than children at Crisscross. I think that's amazing. I believe God will bring in the kids. But I think it's amazing the way we as a church have risen to that. Got more people than that signed up to help on the winter night shelter. Again, it's not about doing stuff, but I think it's us rising to the challenge that God is calling us to make a difference. But what is it that God's called you to do for him in your day, in your todays? Every different one of us will have different opportunities, different challenge, depending on your stage of life, whether you're at home, whether you're at work, whether you're young, whether you're old, teenager, whatever. We will all have different opportunities and different challenges. But I think the challenge, the call to us all is the same. Will we spend our todays consciously saying, I want to do, I want to do the work that God the Father's given me to do. Not more, not less, not other. I'm going to shut up there. I want to pick up on the word that Jane said earlier. Because I, didn't, I never know really how to, what we should do when we finish preaching. Um, honestly, I've just been honest with you. Sometimes I know, but sometimes I don't. This morning I didn't know. I wasn't sure. And then Jane came up and said her word to me. And I'd written down in my little notes there, response, be filled. So I'm not lying to you. Be filled. So this is what we're going to do. So I feel like God wants to come and fill us with his Holy Spirit.
I'm excited about it. So this is the way we're going to do it. We've got time. We've got 15 minutes or so. We're not ending the meeting yet. We have time. Tim's going to come up and just we'll sing a worship song. And then if you would like to come and ask God to fill you freshly with his Holy Spirit. For whatever. Maybe something I've spoken about today. Maybe something in your past. Maybe something in your future. Maybe just be for grace to get over, to get to the summer period. Maybe grace to get over the summer period. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going on in your world, but God knows what's going on in your life and your world. If you want to ask God to come and fill you with his Holy Spirit, because I don't have what you need and you don't have what you need, but he has what you need. And I think Jane's word was about God coming by his Holy Spirit. Well, I think that means he wants to come and fill us and touch our lives. So Tim's going to come up. We're just going to start to worship. And if you want to be filled afresh, you want to ask God to fill you with his Holy Spirit, then while we're singing this song, just come to the front, start to ask. I believe God will start to fill you with his Spirit. And then a few of us will just come around and pray for you. Is that okay?